A number of years ago, scientists discovered that only a small part of our DNA was used for making proteins. So they assumed that the rest of the DNA had no real purpose, and that's why they would often refer to it as junk DNA, because they believed that the rest of our DNA had no real function. But then years later, other scientists came along, and they began to identify other functional elements in the human gene code. And here's what they learned. Yes, only 1% of our DNA codes for protein, but another 20% is biologically functional, and the other 79% is biochemically functional. In other words, there's no useless junk in our gene code. Every part of it serves some kind of purpose. Uh, a scientist in Australia put it like this. He said, for 50 years, we have misunderstood the system. Uh, the old concept, the old way of talking about the DNA just didn't explain everything, and it didn't explain everything because our knowledge was incomplete. The old way of thinking about the human gene code was just wrong because it was based on an incorrect assumption. Well, that's not the first time we've made a mistake like that. Doctors used to think the appendix was worthless, served no purpose in our body, no harm done when you take it out. I mean, why did God give us one of those things in the first place? He must have been sleeping during that part of creation and threw in something that we really didn't need. But then researchers at the Duke Medical School discovered the appendix does have a function. It produces and protects the good germs in our body and it helps to reboot the digestive system. In other words, the appendix is another example of the intelligent design that God displayed when he created us. Or how about this? Engineers used to think because of our limited understanding. Engineers used to think that building the dam across the river was always a good thing to do. But now we know that sometimes that dam does more harm than good. Or people used to think that forest fires were always a tragedy. But now we realize sometimes that fire, that forest fire is actually a blessing because it regenerates the forest, it renews the soil, and it encourages certain kinds of trees to produce seeds that otherwise wouldn't have. See, because our perspective is limited, because our knowledge is so incomplete, many times we don't have the understanding we need in order to make the best decisions. Many times we're not going to get things right. Now let me give you one more example because I think it really helps to set the stage for what we're going to talk about today, what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5, this topic of marriage and divorce. One of my professors told about a time he was teaching at Westminster Theological Seminary. It's a school, it's a grad school in Philadelphia, and they have this magnificent library. It's, it's a building that sits on top of a hill that overlooks the surrounding valley, so it's a beautiful setting. It's an inspirational place to come and study. I mean, it's the perfect spot for a building like this, or so they thought. Then one year, a student arrived on campus, a student who used to work for the U.S. government, and his specialty was checking out radon gas, and he offered his services to the school. Now, as I understand it, when you're checking for levels of radon, they use this unit of measurement called a picocuri. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm probably butchering this, but stay with me, okay? As I understand it, normally in our atmosphere, you have about four picocuries of radon, which is okay. But if you smoke, you smoke cigarettes and you're a chain smoker, every day you're inhaling about 200 picocuries of radon into your lungs, and that's not good. Or if you happen to work in a uranium mine, every day you're inhaling about 400 picocuries of radon, and again, that's not healthy. That's why the U.S. government requires anybody that works in a uranium mine, every three years you have to take a whole year off work just to detox, or else your life expectancy is gonna be seriously cut short. So you begin to get a sense of what we're talking about here, well, anyway, here's this student who comes to Westminster, and he begins to check things out, and he discovers the atmosphere in that library, this beautiful building that sits up there on top of the hill. The atmosphere in that library had 4,000 picocuries of radon. 
That's 10 times more than what you find in a uranium mine. So immediately the government stepped in and shut, shut the library down and surrounded the building with this black and yellow tape. And all across the tape were these words in big, bold letters, danger, lethal, keep out. Now here's my point. Years and years ago when the architects first designed that library and they thought about putting that building up there on top of the hill, they thought that would be a wise thing to do. But instead of building wisely, they were building foolishly because there was something they didn't know. 40 miles below that building, 40 miles down there in the Earth's crust, there was a fracture in that crust, and through that hole came one of the largest concentrations of radon gas ever found in our planet. In other words, something that looked good, putting that building on top of that hill, something that looked good was not good at all. Again, as human beings, because our perspective is limited, because our understanding of things is so uncertain, if we don't get another point of view, a heavenly point of view, we're not going to get things right. We're headed for all kinds of trouble. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is offering to us in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give you a new perspective. I want to show you the right way. I want to show you the best way to live. And that's especially true when Jesus begins to talk about marriage and divorce. See, in first century Israel, many Jews really thought that they were doing something good when they encouraged people to get a divorce. And so they go out of their way to make that procedure of ending that marriage. They went out of their way to make that procedure as simple and easy as possible so that dissolving a marriage was not a difficult thing to do. Because they honestly thought that in promoting divorce, they would help reduce the misery and the conflict that people were experiencing in their homes, communities, and thus make their towns and villages a better and safer place to live. But Jesus came along and said, no, you're wrong. Instead of making things better, you're making things worse. Because number one, you don't appreciate the dangers involved in breaking up a marriage. And number two, you're tinkering around with something you don't understand. Only God really knows what it takes to make a marriage work. In other words, think of it like this. When it comes to things like schools and art museums and civic organizations and other institutions like that, it's fine for us to tinker around with those things because we invented it. I mean, the idea for every one of those institutions, it, it came right out of here. We came up with that. So we've got a pretty good grasp on what those things are designed to do and how they're made to benefit others. And every one of those institutions, that's a good thing to have. And we need to keep tinkering around with it to make it better and better and a more, more benefit to our society. But when you start messing around with a marriage relationship, you're trying to fix something that was invented by God. The idea for this wonderful, this marvelous relationship, it came straight out of his heart. So only God really knows and really understands what it takes to make the marriage work, which means when you ignore his wisdom and you begin to tinker around with that relationship, handling things just with your own ideas and your own feelings and your own opinions and your best guess and your hunches, you're headed for trouble. And not just for yourself, but for all the other people who are going to be affected by your decisions too. So that's why today I want to start back in the Old Testament. And I want us to hear God's, God's heart on this matter. What does God say about divorce? Why is he so concerned about the breaking up of a marriage? I mean, every time you read about this in the Bible, it's obvious this is something that bothers him. It troubles him greatly. Why is that so? And in the eyes of God, is it ever right to get a divorce? So I want us to go back to the Old Testament, first of all, get some background so that we can better appreciate what Jesus is teaching there 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, before you tune me out, you need to understand I am not here to hammer anybody today. That's not my intent. I really believe the Bible offers a lot of hope on this topic. There is nobody who understands better how painful this topic is than God himself because God himself has been through a divorce. So for anybody to act self-righteous about this, for anybody to look down their nose at somebody else and, oh, you've been divorced? How awful, how shameful. I haven't been divorced, but you've been divorced? Like there's some kind of second-rate Christian because they've been through an experience like that? How dare you think like that? Because when you look down on somebody like that, you are looking down on God himself. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. God says, I divorced Israel. God was not afraid to call himself a divorced person. And that also means God knows from personal experience how painful and traumatic this can be. So understand, though the words that God speaks here in the Bible are going to be very strong. God is not shy in talking about this topic. His words will be very strong, yet his words are not harsh or mean-spirited or narrow-minded. When God speaks about this topic, he speaks out of a heart of love because he, doesn't want, he does not want people to get hurt. And yet that's exactly what happens. Every time a divorce occurs, somebody gets hurt. And God wants to stop the pain. So we're going to begin back in the book of Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. The book of Malachi, chapter 2. And I'll begin reading with verse 10. Follow along with me up here in the screen. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? This idea of being one. It's going to be repeatedly emphasized. You'll notice this throughout this scripture. He just keeps coming back to that idea. One our God is one in the sense that he is whole and complete. There's nothing splintered or fractured, nothing dysfunctional, nothing missing or lacking here. He's perfectly whole and complete. And God wants every one of us to experience that same peace, that same shalom, that health, that wholeness. But it only comes when we live in harmony with him. When we're at one with God and we're at one with his design for our lives. Well, here you have a situation in the days of Malachi. You've got a group of people, the nation of Israel, who are not at one with God. They've broken covenant with him because they've broken covenant with each other. It says, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors? That covenant, that relationship that God made there on Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments. Why do we profane it? How do they profane it? By being unfaithful to one another. And now verse 11 He's going to spell out the specific ways they've been unfaithful. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Detestable, meaning it's something that's revolting to God. It's distasteful. That's the very opposite of what he wants. He does not like that. He hates when something like this happens. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary, the place where God comes down to get close to his people. The place that normally God loves. Because there, in a very personal way, he can get close to us. Yet that sanctuary has been defiled and desecrated. And here's why. Because the men of Judah have been divorcing their wives and going off and marrying other women. And not just any kind of woman, but pagan women. Women who have no faith in God and are worshiping pagan idols. And now they're worshiping those pagan idols too. 
So verse 12 is for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, remove him from the community so he won't influence anybody else to make that same kind of sinful choice. Yet verse 13, here's the irony and sad irony. These guys who are blatantly disobeying God and yet they still keep coming back to the sanctuary, the temple. They're still coming to church acting like everything's okay, like they haven't done anything wrong. Another thing you do, verse 13, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor upon your offerings. He sacrifices the worship that you're seeking to offer to him. And verse 14, you ask why? It is because Yahweh, it's the personal name of God. Yahweh is the witness between you and the wife of you, the, the woman you first married. You have been unfaithful means you have acted treacherously. You have betrayed. You committed treason. Because she is your partner. She is the wife of your marriage covenant. In the eyes of God, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. Has not the one God made you? We're made to be at one with him. We're made to be at one with each other. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does this one God seek? That as you become one in a marriage, in a good and godly marriage, and you're blessed in a relationship like that, it's also going to begin to bless other people like the kids. As they watch your example of following the Lord now, they're going to want to begin to follow him too. So many others blessed when you're at one. So God says, be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of youth. And then verse 16, some of your Bible translations at this point will have God speaking. And you hear God say, and I hate divorce. Well, God is, please understand, God has already made that clear. The first part of the book of Malachi, he hates it when a covenant is broken. And he's made it clear in verses 11 and 12 that this is a detestable thing, something he does not like. And, and why does he not like it? Because of what it does to people. So that's what he's going to explain here in verse 16. Verse 16, we're still talking about the men of Judah and the horrible things they've done. And God says, here's why it's so horrible. Because the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, does violence to the one he's supposed to love and honor and cherish and protect. Does violence? Yeah, he broke her heart. He destroyed the relationship. He violates the integrity of the family. He does all kinds of damage to the heart and soul and well-being of the children in that family and creates this uncertain, insecure future. So God says, don't let this happen. Be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful. Very strong. Now, I want you to understand what has happened here. And then number two, what does it mean for us? The men of Judah have broken covenant with God because they've broken covenant with their wives. And they did this in two ways. Not only were they being faithful to their marriage vows and divorcing their wives and going off and marrying somebody else, but number two, they were chasing after women who were pagans. They had no faith in God at all. Listen, it has never been God's will, never, for a believer to marry an unbeliever. This is why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that when a spouse dies, that the person who remains, the person who's still living, they are free to remarry in the eyes of God. That's fine with him. In a situation like that, you're not bound. You don't have to remain a widow or a widower for the rest of your days. No. You want, if you want, if you choose, you want to get remarried, that's fine in the eyes of God. But the Apostle Paul says, make sure of this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, that when you do remarry, you marry in the Lord. You marry somebody who belongs to him. And here's one of the reasons why. What's happening in the days of Malachi? These men of faith have given up their faith because of marrying these pagan women. Now they're worshiping their pagan idols. 
So what do we get out of this? I get two very important lessons from what we learn here and from what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, we get a much larger understanding of this word adultery. Adultery is too many times, too many times we kind of look at it in a very narrow fashion as though it only means sexual unfaithfulness. It does mean that. I mean, when a person who's married, they have sexual relationships with somebody who's not a part of that marriage, you have committed adultery. That's true. But there's so much more to the word than just that. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 12? The Pharisees, they kept asking Jesus for a sign. Uh, do another sign for us, Jesus. Do another miracle. And maybe then we might believe. We might believe, but we need another miracle. I mean, they witnessed so many before. Do another one. And you remember how Jesus responded to them? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39 says, Oh, you evil and adulterous generation. Adulterous? Adulterous in what way? Is he accusing the Pharisees of breaking up marriages and having affairs? No, there's no sexual misconduct going on in Matthew chapter 12. So in what way are they being adulterous? They're not honoring their vow to God. They're being unfaithful in their commitment to trust and serve the Lord because they will not commit to Jesus. They just keep at, they got this excuse. They just, oh, well, I'm not quite there yet, Jesus. Another sign, another miracle, and then maybe I might believe. But it's all just to cover up. It's just talk to cover up the unwillingness in their heart to commit, to be faithful to the Lord. Or think about James, the brother of Jesus, and how he talks about this. James chapter 4, verse 4, he says, oh, you adulterous people. Adulterous? Adulterous in what way? Well, he goes ahead to explain. He says, do you not know that friendship of this world puts you at enmity with God? And again, James is not accusing his readers of any kind of sexual sin, but here is what he is accusing them of. They've become so absorbed in their culture, a culture that does not honor God. They, they embrace what their culture values, not what God values. In other words, being in with a crowd means more to them than being right with the Lord. And in doing that, they've broken faith with Him. They've broken their vow. They've become unfaithful to God. So now, with that much bigger understanding of this word adultery, it has this general idea of just being unfaithful. Now we can much better understand what Jesus is trying to say in Matthew chapter 5. Notice Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Here's one of the biblical justifications for divorce. It's a Greek word, pornea. You hear that? Pornea. We get our word pornography from that. It's a word that describes all kinds of sexual misconduct. So we're talking about a situation here, not just a one-time deal, but if somebody's repeatedly engaged in any of this kind of activity and they're not sorry for what they've done, they're not willing to change, then maybe, you don't have to, but maybe it's time to call this quits. But notice, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife and there is no sexual immorality, then what happens? When this man divorces his wife, what does he do to his wife? It says he causes her to commit adultery. Causes her to commit adultery? Is Jesus saying that when the man gets the divorce, he forces this woman to go out and have all kinds of affairs with all kinds of men? No. What he is saying is this. You see, this causes to commit adultery. In the Greek, it's written in the passive voice, which means it's not something she does. It's something that's been done to her. When the man gets the divorce and there's no biblical justification for it, what, what has happened is in putting his wife out of the house and shutting her out of the marriage, he is now put in her place where she can no longer be faithful to her vows. 
She's not guilty. She is the innocent party here. She is the one who has been sinned against. She has been forced into a position where she can no longer honor and keep the marriage covenant with her husband. She can't be faithful to him because he won't let her be faithful to him. He's the one that got the divorce. He's the one that closed the door on the relationship, which is exactly what happened to all those godly women and godly wives back there in the book of Malachi. See, this is why Matthew chapter 5, long before Jesus ever gets to this subject of divorce, he first of all spends a lot of time talking about anger and treating people with contempt. And then he goes into great detail talking about this issue of lust and warning us about all the different ways we create and cultivate these unhealthy and wholesome desires for other people where we begin to develop attachments, strong emotional attachments with the people that we work with or the people that we're chatting with on the internet, attachments that diminish our affections for our spouse. Jesus said if we just eliminate that anger and eliminate that lust, we wouldn't even have to talk about divorce. In other words, there's a whole lot more to this idea of being faithful to your husband and being faithful to your wife. Well, at least we didn't get a divorce. Listen, a man may never have an affair with another woman, and yet if he fails to show his wife on a daily basis genuine love and kindness and affection, can you really say he's being faithful to her? Not according to the Bible. A a woman may never cheat on her husband, and yet if she's constantly treating him with contempt, constantly despising and ridiculing them in front of the kids, purposely going out of her way when they're out in public to embarrass him in public and make him look like he's some kind of idiot or some kind of bum, and she never gives him the respect he needs as a man. Can you honestly say she's being faithful to her husband? Not according to the Bible. Let me put the spotlight on myself. It just bothers me that sometimes the person we claim to love the most Sometimes we treat the worst. There are days, not always, but there are days. It's been a long day. I've been dealing with all different kinds of people, and then I come home, and I'm just drained. I mean, the last thing I want to do is talk. I'm all talked out. But my wife, Martha, she loves to talk. And I don't mean this in a negative or a joking fashion. She's just a great conversationalist. And understand, Martha's had a long day, too. She's a schoolteacher. And I want to tell you, being a school teacher is not easy. I learned this one week a year in VBS, okay? You spend your day with 25 hyperactive kids who do not understand the meaning of the word sit still. And then on top of that, you get all these emails and phone calls from parents who think their kids never do anything wrong. You spend a day like that, you come home drained. And yet, if you know Martha, you know Martha, she comes home with this big smile animated, energetic, and she does her very best to engage me in a meaningful conversation. And some days that's a real challenge for her. Some days it goes something like this. Uh, How you doing, David? Fine. Anything interesting happened today? No, not really. You sure you okay? Yep. And like a bump on a log, I just sit there and grunt and groan. I mean, there's some days I'm just not much fun to be with. I'm not much fun to talk to. And yet here's the hypocrisy. During the course of that very same day when somebody stopped by the church office, when somebody called me on the phone and they asked me those same kind of questions, I was lively and engaging and I went into great detail in my answers and then I turned around and asked them the same questions too. How was your day? Hey, tell me more about it. Why didn't I do that with my wife? Why is it that the people who are supposed to matter the most to us get the least amount of our energy and the least amount of our attention? Are we really being faithful 
to our spouses. See, I think one of the reasons Jesus is speaking these words is because he wants to challenge us. Examine your marriage. Are you really honoring God by honoring the one he put in your life? And then the second lesson I get from this scripture, from Malachi and from Matthew, is this. God designed marriage to be a covenant. A covenant. Not, hey, when things get a little bit unpleasant, things get a little tough, I'm out of here. It's over. I can't, I can't handle this anymore. That's not covenant. Not, yeah, I'm willing to make sacrifices for my wife, but only if she's willing to make sacrifices for me. Or, yeah, I'll support his leadership, but only if he happens to agree with me. That's not covenant. A marriage, in the eyes of God, a marriage is not a 50-50 deal. It's not a contract. It's covenant. And what that means is each person brings everything they have and everything they are, and they are 100% committed to making things better for the other. And that even means when you get to that place in your relationship with the other party, no longer has the capacity to give 100%. Maybe because of an illness or a disease or a disability, yet that should not diminish in any way your commitment to do your very best for them. Nobody demonstrated this better than God himself. Think of that scripture we talked about earlier, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, where God says, I divorced Israel. And yet that divorce only came after 200 years. 200 years where God faithfully, patiently did everything he could to get Israel to turn back to him. I mean, he, 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 he just did, he made every effort possible a wholehearted effort to restore that broken relationship. He held nothing back in his love and showing his love and concern for the people. He kept covenant when they constantly would not keep covenant with him. And only after 200 years of this kind of behavior, this long, persistent, ongoing adultery, this hard-hearted, stubborn resistance to God, which is the very thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 19. This issue of being hard-hearted. And it was only because of the hard hearts that God finally conceded to the divorce. So you see, by his own behavior, God shows us because we're in a covenant, we're not looking for loopholes. We're not looking for an excuse to get out of a tough situation. And because we're in a covenant, that means we do our utmost to make that relationship work. Now, stop and think about this. The God who could not sin, who cannot sin, divorced his wife. So since God cannot do wrong, that means that divorce was not sinful. It occurred because of sin, but the divorce itself was not sinful. And then consider this. In getting that divorce, nobody was ever more wronged or more disrespected than God himself. I mean, God more than carried his weight in this relationship with Israel. Loving, giving, serving, forgiving, constantly reaching out, romancing his people, and yet he got nothing back in return. He experienced all the humiliation of being rejected. He experienced all the pain of being betrayed. He experienced all the anguish of watching the promises constantly being broken by the other party, constantly being broken by mean, defiant, hard-hearted people. In other words, when God experienced divorce, he experienced it at its very worst. No wonder God said in the book of Malachi, I hate divorce. Why? Because of what it does to people. It just turns everybody's world upside down. Not just the couple themselves, but their kids, their grandkids, and all the other relatives do. It's never good. So if it's ever, if the divorce is ever justified, and sometimes it is, if the divorce is ever justified, then it should only be done as a last resort.
Listen, we live in a messed up world and it's messed up because of our sin. But here's my hope. God can take the worst situation and still redeem it. Even in the hardest cases, God can still find a way to bless our lives. And that's because Romans 8.28 is not a cliche. No matter what kind of evil we have committed against others, and no matter what kind of evil has been committed against us, God can still bring something good out of it. Let me give you two quick examples, and then I'll stop. Think about King David. He started his marriage with Bathsheba in the most awful of conditions. I mean, you talk about an unbiblical divorce. Here's David falling in love with a woman he should not have been seeing. And then he committed adultery with her. And then he murdered her husband to get him out of the way so that he could marry Bathsheba. So you talk about starting a marriage knee deep in sin. There couldn't have been a worse situation. And yet David came under conviction that he had done what was wrong. And he genuinely confessed his sin. And then he began to repent. I mean, sincerely turned to God for help. And God cleansed that marriage. And God blessed that relationship, and he gave him a boy, a son, a child named Solomon. And from that family tree came the Messiah, the one through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Who could have imagined something so good coming out of something so evil? Only God could do something like that. And then consider John chapter 4. Jesus is sitting at the well one day when he meets this woman who's been married five times. And not a one of the relationships worked out. We don't know why. We don't have any of the details. But not a one of them worked out. And now here she is with a sixth man. And at this point in her life, she's just given up on the idea of marriage. This time she's just living with a man. Now for a God who hates divorce, could any situation be more disgusting and revolting and displeasing and upsetting than this? And yet how does Jesus treat this woman? Hey, go back to your first husband and make things right. Get your act together. No, he does not condemn her for her past. Instead, he offers her a much better future. Listen, our God has never made it a practice to only accept people who make perfect decisions. Never. How did Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who are bankrupt, who have nothing worthwhile to offer. But though we have nothing good to offer him, he has everything to offer us. So blessed is the one who will come to Jesus so Jesus can transform their lives. Ask King David. Ask the woman at the well. It's true. God can take the worst situations in life and still redeem them. But will you? Will you? Let him do that.